It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, Friday. It is the end of the week. I think it's time to party. <laughs> It's Ross Kaminsky on KOA, 850 AM, 941 FM, and on iHeartRadio. All right, good morning, happy Friday. I'm Ross. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I've, uh, I've asked uh, Gina Gondek, co-host of Colorado's Morning News, who is still apparently warming up from whatever it was <laughs> that Marty made her do this morning. Um, and uh, because Gina made a comment just uh, as, I were, as we were going to do the handoff thing about what I was talking about briefly on the show yesterday regarding fraternities and sororities and so on, because I wasn't in one, mm-hmm. and my dad was, and lots of people were, but I don't know much about it, and I was asking, like, What's it about? What's the appeal? And I asked you if you were in one, and you said... I was the president of one. You were Okay, so what sorority at what school? You got to tell us. Okay, so I was the president of uh, Gamma Phi Beta at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, it's a kind of a smaller college. They like to always say it's a big, smaller college. So it's not... A lot of people are in sororities and fraternities there, but it's not like a Southern school where it's like people die to want to be in one type right, of deal. So. Right. So how many how many girls in the sorority? Probably about a hundred when I was there. Did so. you have any ridiculous hazing procedures? So Grand Valley has always been a no hazing school, and they take that very very seriously. There really? have been uh, fraternities that have been kicked off campus for hazing concerns. And uh, they've always, that's been a really, really big thing that they've been strict on. So sororities, I feel like, are a lot different than the fraternities, at least from my perspective. However, there have always been allegations in the South of, of you know, sororities that have also faced the same thing. One of the things I've wondered about is, um, is, the, is the main driver to get someone into uh, a fraternity or sorority, is it the person just going and saying, I want to be in, and they get in? Or, or is it the fraternity or sorority going to a person saying, we want you? Or is it different in different places, and how does that work? So I've actually heard a really interesting take on this now because I have a sorority sister who actually works for, like, the headquarters of our sorority now. And she has said that they've seen a huge difference between Gen Z now going through sorority recruitment than they saw when I was in school. So when I was going into school, it it was really the idea of you want to be part of something bigger. You want to be part of something that we're all a part of, we all enjoy, we all make a better campus and, and a better lifestyle from being a part of this. Gen Z is much more like, well, what's in it for me? Hmm. So they are a little more selfish about it and saying, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't care if I'm a part of something bigger than myself. 
I want to know what am I going to get out of it. So they've actually had a little bit more trouble with recruitment because they're like, oh, we kind of have to change the way we're going about this now because it's not, oh, you're a part of something so big. It's you want to see what you can get out of it. It reminds me a little of the the push in universities, separate from fraternity and sorority, but in in universities to do things like multi-million dollar gyms with climbing walls and 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 water parks for right. the students and all this like you know not so much about well what it, what it used to be about yeah. let's say mm-hmm. so what what are they doing like how, how do you appeal to a selfish gen zer when you're trying to get uh, her into a sorority that's that's a great question i still think there is a appeal of you know i'm surprised that you didn't get wrangled in when they heard that your father was part of a fraternity there's still the appeal of my sister was in it my mother was in it i want to keep the tradition alive or things like that but for the most part i don't really know how they're i know they have changed their recruitment strategies a lot because it is much more of a you can be a part of this and you can give back to this instead of well we're all doing it so just join us type deal um but are you are you in touch with any of your sorority sisters still I am. Um, the the cliche of it's not four years, it's for life is uh, is real. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you got to face the fact that you're not friends with all ninety nine others. You know, I have maybe a dozen that I still keep in contact with, and will be eventual bridesmaids in my wedding and whatnot. I'm still close to them, but I think you have to kind of stray away from the idea of you have a hundred new friends. It's it's not always like that. You're not going to get along with one hundred people whether you're on you know, a a big organization or a fraternity and sorority. It's just, there's too many clashing opinions. You're not going to have that. Is it, is it part of the very definition of fraternity or sorority that you all live in the same place or does it not have to be? So we did have a um, house. It only held, I think, 30 or 40 people. So we did have that. And uh, kind of the main reason, main way we all communicated was we had Sunday meetings and whatnot. But yeah, there, there were fraternity and sorority houses at my school. They were dry campuses. You were not allowed to have alcohol even in them, let alone hold parties at them. So it was a lot much of a more stricter atmosphere for it. So, but if it only held that many people, then some girls didn't live in the house. Yeah, so you didn't. pretty much could live off campus, on campus housing. You know, a lot of us got together to to kind of put our own little units together at off campus apartment complexes. But Actually, the demand to want to live in the house, as as you could tell, you can't have parties, can't have alcohol, right. wasn't usually pretty high because a lot of people wanted to live all kids. That's all pretty kids. funny. So uh, I'm I'm really curious on on the the dynamic, the interactions between the fraternities and the sororities. You're like and like I had nothing to do with it, right? So I have no idea. And you just see these movies and they have parties together. And what what's that like? Is there actually some structure, some organizations in that? coordinate this stuff or how does that work so luckily the college i went to we were pretty inclusive of of it wasn't like oh you don't talk to that fraternity or oh we don't like to associate with them we all got along and there's to not go too far in the weeds there's a lot of college campuses that have what they call off-campus fraternities which are not nationally recognized it's actually just like a group of people that decided we're going to put together a fraternity and those are actually like not regulated which is where you kind of see a lot of those issues i guess you could say but for the most part we just had you would hear the fraternities having a themed party on a saturday and we'd show up and we'd go and those would be taking place at the off-campus apartment complexes not in their houses and things like that so 
they're really different. I'm talking from kind of a smaller campus standpoint. But yes, you're going to see in the South those huge, huge buildings that are having just a rager, for lack of a better term, with their fraternities. Animal House toga party? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. those existed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a thing. And then, uh, what, Revenge of the Nerds, whatever they were called, Lambda, 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 or something. Did you ever see Revenge no. of the Nerds? No. <laughs> oh, man. All right, it's not Animal House, but it's still pretty good. All right, uh, Madam President, thanks yeah. for spending some time with us. Absolutely. Uh, that's Gina Gondek. You can, you can hear her for four hours every morning, just before me, 5 a.m. to 9 a.m., uh, some mornings her teeth will be chattering thanks to Marty making her stand outside. Don't do that, Marty. Well, three, uh, yeah, and three below, you got to do it. Uh, by the way, it's National Chocolate Cake Day, folks. I just want you to be aware of that because it was National Pie Day the other day, and I kind of poo-pooed that a little bit. National Chocolate Cake Day is a much better day by definition because it's got the word chocolate in the name. And I would just point out, though, that is, it's all about the frosting. All I... I just eat, I'm the guy who will eat like the, the broccoli or the Brussels sprouts first because I just save the better part for last. I know everyone's got their own strategy. So I'll eat the broccoli or the Brussels sprouts or whatever first, and then I'll go to the steak. And this is the same thing with cake. I will eat the cakey bits, the, you know, in between the layers of frosting first and then save the good part for last and eat the frosting. So if you do any of that, and if you have any chocolate cake today, take a picture of the chocolate cake and send it to me at ross at iheartmedia.com and uh, show me your chocolate cake photos on National Chocolate Cake Day. All right, I got a lot of silly things to do today and also some not-so-silly things. Oh, look at that. Did they take down the tweet? I cannot believe it. Well, I can believe it. All right, I think I, I think I probably can find this thing anyway. So the AP Style Book. These are the folks who, who write generally either the definitive or at least a definitive guide to the way to use language in journalistic writing. And they wrote this tweet, and, and now they've taken it down. I wanted to share the whole tweet with you, and now they've taken it down. Oh, my gosh. Um, I wonder if I can find this real quick. This is, this is not the way live radio is supposed to go. But then when the Associated Press takes down a tweet that you were planning on, on talking about, I mean, I bet you there's news reports all, all over the place about it. Let me see if I can... Uh, if I can find one that has the, the quote of the entire original, original tweet. Anyway, what they did was they put up, they put up a tweet saying that people, <clears throat> pardon me, should stop using the word the, T-H-E, in front of certain words because they said it's, it's dehumanizing. So they said, and okay, so what they did was they deleted the original tweet and wrote a new version of it where they removed something, and I'll tell you what they removed. So they, they wrote a tweet that said, avoid using the in front of words like poor. So don't, don't talk about the poor, the mentally ill, the wealthy, the disabled, the college educated, because they said that it tends to be dehumanizing. I, I, I guess when you, when you put them in a group or something, is that, I don't know, is that the point? It, it, I don't know, V whatever. But what's so funny about it 
is that in one of their examples, oh, here, I, let's see. Here, I, I, I found the original tweet saved somewhere else. It's not on Twitter. We recommend avoiding general and often dehumanizing, quote-unquote, the labels, such as the poor, the mentally ill, the French, the disabled, the college-educated. Instead, use wording such as people with mental illnesses and use these descriptions only when clearly relevant. And apparently, the French got pretty pretty pissed off with this. Oh, my gosh. Um, so even before this thing kind of blew up, some people must have said to the AP, like, why'd you include the French in that? Like, along with the disabled and the mentally ill and whatever. And so they, they uh, posted another tweet where they took out the French. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, so... The French embassy in the U.S. says, uh, I, I guess this is us now, um, because they <laughs> anyway, it's, it really is, it's silly, but it's, it's also ridiculous. It, it, it's important in a way, believe it or not. It might not seem like it's important, but it is, because you've got these woke snowflakes looking to be offended and is it not like is it not peak 2023 is it not peak gen z or millennial i don't know probably gen z just is it not peak finding offense under every rock when you are going to decide that the word the is too offensive to be allowed in journalism are you kidding me now, as a guy who uses words to make a living, and I've been writing for a lot longer than I've been on the radio, my first editor was a guy who's actually been a guest on the show a lot of times. His name is Jed Babin. He's a former deputy undersecretary of defense. And he was my first editor. He was the first ever person ever to pay me to write something. At the time, I was writing for Human Events, and then he went to the American Spectator, and I went with him to the American Spectator. And I write, I used to write a lot for the American Spectator. Now it's just several times a year because I'm so busy. And, um, and he told me repeatedly a couple of things. One of them is not relevant to this conversation directly, but I'll mention it anyway because I think it's a great point. He said, whenever you write an article, go through and look for every word that ends with L-Y and delete it. Unless it's a person's name, you know, like Holly or something. But any adverb ending in L-Y, he said, can probably be removed. Go check them all very, very carefully. And in most articles, you can delete. Uh, did I say adjective? I meant adverb. If I said adjective, you can delete every adverb that ends in L-Y in most articles. So that was one, that's a pretty cool thing, and I've, I've kept that in mind. When I find myself starting to write an, an L-Y word, I stop, and I ask myself, do I really need it? And most of the times, I don't. The other thing that Jed actually taught me two other things. Don't use a $5 word when a 50-cent word will do. So that's one. And this is what relates now to the Associated Press Stylebook thing. Do not use more words than you need to use to make a point clearly. So if you could say the mentally ill rather than people suffering from mental illness, 
if you can say the disabled instead of even something as barely different as the the differently abled or those with I don't know. I, you make it up. I don't know. Because I don't, my brain doesn't work that way. It, they're disabled. It's not an insult. I'm not insulting a disabled person and I'm not insulting disabled people as a group to have a heuristic, like a, a, a shortcut, if there's something where it makes sense to talk about them as a group to say the disabled. It's not insulting anybody. It's not dehumanizing everybody. anybody. It's just... It's just an easy, comprehensible way to talk about things. And the, the problem that happens when you've got liberal wordsmith snowflakes getting their panties in a bunch about the word the is that they force people who follow them to use five words when two words will do. And that is the problem. And yet, and yet, it's AP. It's AP. I mean, their Twitter account has 363,000 followers. It's a big deal when these people say stuff, but I bet you they're going to get so much pushback on this idiocy. I don't think anyone's going to follow this guidance, and they may even have to walk it back, and I hope so, because it's so, so dumb. All right, speaking of dumb, we had a dumb decision yesterday, but an expected one out of the Colorado State Supreme Court where Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop yesterday lost his appeal on yet another one of these cake lawsuits. I'll quote briefly from nationalreview.com, and I want to make sure you know I am trying to get Jack and his attorney on the show on Monday to give us their take on it. A Colorado Court of Appeals three-judge panel, all appointed by Democratic governors, upheld an earlier court decision requiring Jack Phillips to bake the cake. This is um, a, a, like a red cake with blue frosting or something. Oh, a blue cake with... Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a pink, uh, it's pink cake with blue frosting in order to celebrate this person, Autumn Scardina's transition from male to female. And for the record, I couldn't care less about Autumn Scardina's personal life. And Autumn, Autumn Scardina is a troll who should leave Jack Phillips alone. Anyway, the court said that Jack Phillips has to make the cake. And I'm sure he's still not going to. And they're going to appeal, of course. His attorneys are going to appeal. I guess they'll have to appeal to federal court now. But I just wanted you to be aware. I mean, this guy has been the subject of these nuisance lawsuits and nuisance regulators and nuisance public officials here in Colorado for more than a decade now. And it's, it's time for them to stop. And Autumn Scardina can go get a cake from somewhere else. And I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it once again. There is no way, no way that a court should ever find that so-called anti-discrimination law trumps the First Amendment. When we come back, is the United States putting itself in a dangerous place by giving away so many weapons to support Ukraine? It's time to talk with Kurt Cambier of Centennial Capital Partners. It's, um, it's Friday, so that means it is time uh, for some fun fact or quote 
or something. So uh, let's get what? Okay. Hi, Kurt. You got me? Gotcha. Hey, uh, the, uh, the, the fun fact will be, uh, you know, it's a little bit about like New Year's resolutions we all kind of go through this time of year. And, and for, the, uh, for mine, I've decided to get back in the best shape of my life I was when I was 28 uh, because I don't want to work this hard and build this wealth for my wife's new boyfriend. So the quote is, uh, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. And I think if we start uh, the mindset, uh, it's in our hands, we can all create a great life. I love that. My wife has a little, you know, inspirational sign somewhat along those lines uh, in our house as well. And, and I really like it because, in, in a sense, the concept of finding yourself suggests that whatever you are, it just is what it is, and it's not going to change. You might not know what it is, but it is what it is, whether you know it or not. And it, it, feel, it, it can feel a little like a dead end where creating yourself opens, opens up so many possibilities in every part of your life. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, it, uh, you know, the future is nothing more than a series of nows. And uh, so uh, you can't say, I'm going to do it this weekend. You got to do it now. And so, you know, forensic in my life, I've been uh, working out, lifting weights uh, very aggressively for an hour and a half every morning uh, since the new year began. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. You know, um, folks, when, when we talk about Kurt Cambier most of the, and with Kurt Cambier most of the time, you know, we're talking about markets and the economy and stuff like that. But something I like to make sure to mention from time to time is so I, I love Kurt's values, and I think you will too, and they really do play into how financial planning works, but Kurt will explain all that to you. Get started at KurtCambier.com, K-U-R-T-C-A-M-B-I-E-R.com, or by phone for the last time this week. Kurt, what's the number? Direct line, 303-271-1067. Give me a call, and everybody stay warm this weekend. You too, buddy. Talk to you on Monday. You got it. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey, Mel. Bry here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as I... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. All right, good morning. I'm Ross. Thanks for spending a little time with me. I was scouring the Twitterverse yesterday, and I saw a very interesting tweet or thread of tweets, for those of you down with the Twitter lingo, uh, from Elbridge Colby, who goes by Bridge, and he's been a guest on the show before. And the short version, because I'm going to let Bridge explain the long version, and we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of it. The short version, I would say, is... 
Americans who are making policy decisions about supporting Ukraine should at least keep in mind the potential depletion of American readiness should there be another conflagration. Bridge Colby is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development. Um, he was the co-lead on the development of the National Defense Strategy in 2017 and early 2018. His book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, is recently out in paperback. Hey, Bridge, welcome back to KOA. Thanks for doing this, especially on short notice. Great to be with you, Ross. Always a pleasure. Did I properly summarize the very highest level take? Uh, yeah, I think you did. I think I think you put it quite well, and and I would say actually sort of much more judiciously than most people are able to to, to manage. I mean, in the sense, I think, look, we are uh, on the verge. Uh, not, well, there's a conflict going on in Europe uh, with Ukraine. I mean, obviously a malevolent invasion by the Russians, but at the same time, there's a looming conflict over Taiwan and much more broadly in Asia. That, from our standpoint, is just fundamentally much more important because China is much more important than Russia, powerful, and Asia is kind of where the future of the world economy is going to be. And the fact is that we're not adequately prepared for that fight, and that's pretty clear, especially if you take a kind of judiciously pessimistic look at what, you know, what would be involved. A long war, Chinese have the world's largest industrial base. And what we're seeing now is that our industrial base is not adequately prepared. This is now coming out, it's sort of seeping out. There was a big article by Gordon Lubold in the Wall Street Journal based on a CSIS study that came out. And people say this isn't Ukraine's fault. That, that's true, but it's also not the point. Uh, the reality is that our, our, you know, there are fundamental trade-offs in terms of what our industrial base can do and what our forces can do. And, and you know, my view is we're not adequately prepared for a Taiwan fight, and we say that's our priority, so we should make it the priority while still supporting Ukraine consistent with that prioritization. Okay, so I want to just highlight your last several words there uh, before we continue on this conversation you are you are not arguing that the depletion of our sto our stockpiles of weapons is in and of itself uh an argument to stop supporting ukraine no not not totally but it's more like if you've got a priority that's rational that makes sense you should make sure you fulfill that priority before you look at your secondary or tertiary things, right. and Ukraine is secondary or tertiary. And by the way, the Europeans are a much larger economy than the Russians. Uh, for instance, you look at the Leopard tanks, there are far more Leopard tanks you know, available for, for Ukraine. The Europeans should be taking the lead. It's not like we just have to leave the Ukrainians in the lurch. There are things we can do while you know, moving to a more reduced level of support while focusing on Asia. How much do you think it's in America's strategic interest to see Vladimir Putin lose in Ukraine? Um, the word lose, I mean, look, it, it, I understand where it comes from. It's, it's, a, it's a political term. It's, it's useful. I mean, I think the point, the way I would say is it's, it is in America's interest that Ukraine not be dominated by Russia, because if Ukraine were dominated by Russia, it could ultimately turn the power of Ukraine, uh, you know, in a much stronger power base against NATO, and those are direct commitments. But it's all relative, Ross. That's the, that's the point, and that's what I really am sort of arguing against, if you will, in the main conversation is it's like Ukraine is sort of like the whole story and it's almost like a morality play. And, you know, the analogy I use is like, well, maybe you've got heart disease, that's China, acute heart disease. And maybe you have like, you know, arthritis. It's a, it's a serious problem, but it's not going to kill you in the near term or, you know, more likely in the long term. That's the way we have to, we have to look at it. The other thing you have to bear in mind is the Ukrainians are doing pretty well. Now, I don't, are they going to win? Are they going to liberate Crimea? I don't know. I mean, that would be great. 
but is that a realistic expectation at this point? And I think we, we need to get past the sort of euphoria, moral posturing phase and really think strategically and clearly in our own heads, because a lot of Americans could die necessarily if we don't. I would like to do a little quantification with you. We just did some qualification. When, we when you talk about sending various types of weapons systems to Ukraine, could you go through a, a few of them and the quantification of how many we're sending versus how many we have versus how many... If Bridge Colby were in charge, we would be sure to have in warehouses somewhere. Right. So in, in fairness, I think the administration has been conscious of the dilemma that I've been talking about. So they've been mostly sending from stockpiles that they appear to think are less relevant. Some of them are. So so some of the web, you know, things like maybe 155 millimeter artillery shells, it's possible they could be useful in, in a Taiwan conflict. They could be given to the Taiwanese. Maybe not as, as acute. There are others like HIMARS and that kind of thing that could possibly be useful for the Taiwanese. Bear in mind that the Taiwanese have ordered a bunch of weapons, and those are now farther back in backlog because of the Ukraine conflict. What I would say is like the right way we have to think about it is we're behind the curve on the Taiwan fight, which makes war more likely, and it's more likely that we lose. And there's only so much the defense industrial base. We, 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 it's important to talk about the final assembled missiles, but bear in mind that these are based on components, subcomponents. Things like turbofans. There's like one company that makes turbofans in the United States that goes across all kinds of different cruise missiles. So I think that's the sort of level at which we're – if we were if, – if, if a year ago the administration had said we are going to massively increase the defense industrial base and we're going to take care of the Taiwan problem and the Ukraine problem, well, then that would have redressed my concern. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't have this concern. Mm -hmm. But that's not where we are, and that's not where we're headed. And so in that context, it's sort of like it doesn't matter if it's not Ukraine's fault. It matters what the impact is. You know, if you, I mean, I was thinking of an example. If, you, if, you're, if you're running and you figure out that you have, like, I don't know, some horrible leg infection, it may not be, the, it may not be because you were running, but you may still have to stop running, right? It's a, it, we got to figure, focus on what it is that we most fundamentally need to do. And I should say, uh, you, you may not be aware of this, but I am president of the Bad Analogy Club, and I have been for many, many years. <laughs> And um, I love analogies. I know. And you're, I, I, I don't know if that last one was bad enough to get in, but it was, it was in the right direction. You need, a, you need a little more practice. You need, you do need to. We got about three minutes left here. For those just joining, my special guest, Elbridge Colby, former deputy assistant secretary of defense who wrote uh, recent national defense strategy. All right. So you saw that I replied to your tweet with a tweet saying, I wonder what Admiral Stavridis thinks about this. And so I emailed him and said, what question do you want me to ask Elbridge Colby? And he said, what he, he asked me to ask you, what are the three systems that we should send to Taiwan to best provide deterrent against China? Um, well, uh, we pretty much know what those are. Those are anti-ship cruise missiles like the Harpoon, uh, sea mine capabilities, air defense capabilities. Those are all backlogged. But the point is, is that Taiwan on its own is not going to be able to defend itself. The Ukraine model won't work in Taiwan because China's way too strong. So we need to be ready. And there are weapons that we don't have enough of. Admiral Cerritos would know this very well. One of the key things is we don't have enough long-range anti-ship missiles. Apparently, that we might run out of them in the first week of the fight. Those are critical to killing off the Chinese invasion fleet. And you know, we have to assume a war is going to go long. So those are the kinds of things that, that, that we need. 
And, you know, look, I mean, just fundamentally, $100 billion, depending on how you measure it, 50 to $100 billion went to Ukraine last year. And again, in a good cause, that's not the issue. But we weren't even prepared to give $2 billion in grants to Taiwan. Taiwan's a rich country. I get it. But if that's where the real threat is, and I think it is, well, you know, we shouldn't be penny-wise, pound-foolish. And I fear that's what we're doing. All right, last question for you, and it's sort of a reiteration of something we were talking about before, but I just want to hone in a little. we got about one minute. If, okay. if you were in charge, uh, how much uh, – this is a difficult thing to quantify – but how much would we be supporting Ukraine? It doesn't sound like you're saying send them nothing. Right. Here's what I would do. I would, I would basically – if I were in charge, I'd say, hey, cancel all my meetings. Everybody who's coming into my office is helping me to solve the, the Taiwan problem to make sure we get it right and not a close call but really sure. And that's what my intention is going to be. That's the resources. Those are the executive orders I'm going to ask the president to sign. Those are the co calls to Congress and allies I'm going to make. All the things the Biden administration is doing on Ukraine, that's what essentially I would be doing for Taiwan because that's the priority. Then I would say to the Europeans, hey, you guys are a bunch of rich countries, right? I mean you're way bigger economies than Europe. Germany – grow up, you know, get off this, you know, ridiculous assessment that you're, you know, at the end of history and do your job like the polls are and, and put pressure instead of, you know, applauding the Germans for what they were doing, which is what the administration's doing, we should be saying this is absurd. You need to step into the lead. And frankly, actually, some of what the French have been saying, take responsibility. That's the sort of attitude. This is a solvable problem. It's not that we lack resources. It's we're not pursuing the strategy and the kind of political approach that would lead to success. Elbridge Colby, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, co-founder of the Marathon Initiative. His book is called The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict. Thanks so much for doing this, Bridge. I always really enjoy talking to you. Always a pleasure, Ross. Best to you. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on KOA. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Is that... Is that Nickelback? What on God's green earth is going on with 800 Nickelback songs on my show in one week right after spending time joking about whether you would go to a Nickelback concert if you got tickets for free? The world is conspiring against me, and by the world, I mean my producers. Because when I'm sitting in here, they are my world. All right, I would actually like to take a moment to respond to, to a couple of listener texts about our last guest and the conversation we had with Elbridge Colby, who, by the way, is the real deal. He is one of those sorts of guests who I take, truly, I, I take some pride in being able to bring him to you. I, I think he's not a guy who would go on every local radio show in America, given what he's done and what he does and, and all that. Anyway... I want to respond to a couple of things. First of all, one listener says, what about all the stuff we left in Afghanistan? Yeah, we left a lot of stuff in Afghanistan. We did not leave tanks, but we did leave a lot of stuff. I, I will say that there's a number that's thrown around out there like we left $80 billion of stuff. or That, that, that number is wrong, like in order of magnitude wrong. It, it, 
you know, I think that's the total amount of stuff that we ever brought there. But a lot of that was already gone, already destroyed, already worn out, already whatever. But yeah, we left a lot of stuff. Would the stuff that we left in Afghanistan help in Ukraine? I, I don't know. But I, I don't think it would be any kind of war-changing stuff. Uh, the, so that's one thing. The, the more important thing that I, I wanted to address, and I think this is from two separate people. One says, Ross, these warmongers are terrifying. And another one says, always bothers me hearing the excitement in the voices of the military experts when talking about war. They love it. And um, I, I think those are from two different people. Yeah, I mean, they're from two different phone numbers. I don't know if it's the same person texting from two different phone numbers. But I want to address that for a minute because I think this is, this is a super important point. I, I think that's a significant either mischaracterization if you're doing it on purpose or misunderstanding if you're not doing it on purpose. And I suspect you're not doing it on purpose. I suspect it's a misunderstanding of what Elbridge Colby and people like him are, are saying, are intending when they have the kind of conversation that we just had. When Elbridge Colby says... If he were in charge, like if he were Secretary of Defense, and, and you know what? With a little luck, he will be one day. He would sit down with, with his planners and figure out what is it that we need in order to be able to win a war with China if there is one. And basically what he was saying is, when we get all that stuff together, if there's anything left over, we can give it to the Ukrainians, and until then, we should let the Europeans support the Ukrainians. That's basically his argument. That's a reasonable argument, but it's uh, I, the thing I want to focus on here is it's not correct to characterize what he's saying as being pro-war. In fact, what he said directly, and I may get the word slightly wrong, but this will be very close to an exact quote. What he said was that our current lack of stockpiling of enough weapons increases the risk of war. That's the key. I, I was going to ask him this in the middle of the interview, but we went on to another thing. But basically what he said struck me immediately at the moment, at the moment that he said it, it struck me immediately as a longer version of peace through strength. When Ronald Reagan spent an immense amount of money at the time building up America's national defense and talking about what uh, opponents of space-based defense systems called Star Wars and all that. Nobody was really paying attention, thought that Reagan's goal there was to start a war. I mean, he called it peace through strength. It means something. If, if, if there's a mugger walking down the street and he sees one person who looks kind of you know, frail, not paying attention, easy target, and another person who's walking down the street who looks pretty tough, looks like he knows how to handle himself, might or might not be carrying a gun. Who's the mugger gonna mug? You know. And so when Elbridge Colby and people like him are saying, we need to be strong, we need to be able to win a war against China, the purpose of that is not to go to war against China, it is exactly the opposite. The purpose of that is to prevent China from starting 
a war. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, Friday. It is the end of the week. I think it's time to party. Thank God it's Friday. It's Friday night. It's Ross Kaminsky on KOA, 850 AM, 941 FM, and on iHeartRadio. Everybody's working All right, let's do this. I'm Ross. Thanks for being here. Uh, I do want to remind producer Dragon that I have the Name That Tune song for today. We'll do that near the end of the show. And, and also, when we were talking about spam, um, a, a while back, uh, I, was it you? Didn't you ask why do we call junk email spam? That was not me. I think that may oh, have maybe, been a listener. Oh, all right. Or maybe it was, I don't know. Anyway, somebody somebody said we should make that an I've been wondering question. Why do we call junk email spam? So I'm going to answer that later this hour, and we will pretend that that you asked the question, even though you didn't. Um, why not? I'm going to talk about something that sounds like a downer and a negative thing, but I promise you I don't mean it that way. It's just going to start that way. So there are these people out there called the, uh, the group is called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And every January, they update something that they call their doomsday clock. And this started back in the mid-1940s at the University of Chicago when... Scientists who were working on our nuclear weapons program started a newsletter called Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. I'm going to go to Axios.com for this. The group gathered two years later to discuss the looming threat of nuclear war. Rachel Bronson, current president and CEO of the Bulletin, said they were worried the public wasn't really aware of how close we were to the end of life as we knew it. Artist Marty Langsdorf, the wife of Manhattan Project physicist Alexander Langsdorf, came up with the design of a clock to represent the idea of time running out to avert the danger. The doomsday clock image was first published in 1947 in the first issue of the Bulletin, published as a magazine. And since 2019, a, an actual physical clock has sat in the lobby of the bulletin's offices at the University of Chicago. Now, one of the things that has always bugged me about this is I, I think we're supposed to think about how close we are to extinction, either as a nation or a species or a civilization or something. And we're supposed to think about it either on a 12-hour scale or a 24-hour scale. I don't know which but it doesn't really matter in the context of what I'm going to mention to you now, right? But when you got a clock, when you're looking at a, an analog clock, the big old circular clock with the hands on it, not a digital clock, you're looking at 12 hours. And so you would think 
you know, if you're at a time where things are pretty safe in the world and we're not really that close to nuclear war and there's, you know, peace breaking out everywhere. I don't know if you were looking at a clock that represented how much time is left for humanity versus maybe the time we've already had, I suppose. You know, what? where might you set the clock? If midnight, if when it gets to midnight, or 11.59, just so we're not confusing anybody, when it gets all the way around to midnight, like that's when we all die, what would you set the clock at at a time when things are pretty good? And it doesn't seem like there's really any significant chance at all of a major civilization-destroying war. I don't know, is set the clock at 6 p.m.? 5 p.m., 7 p.m., 12.01 a.m. Maybe 12.01 a.m., although in the, if you're doing it in the context of the entirety of human history so far, you might, and I'm trying to be pessimistic. Like, if I were feeling really negative, I'd set it at 6 p.m. I'd set it like halfway. If humans have been around for 100,000 or a million, well, I don't know how many but years. But the dinosaurs lasted how long? I mean, come on. Yeah? Come on. So... Yeah, but you don't know when in the dinosaurs' history they would have had their, been setting their, their clock. Own clock. Yeah, yeah, and uh -huh. it might have been six p.m. for them, and they thought everything was fine. I, I mean, actually, it could have been it, it it could have been a day before when they invented their clock, but that was bad luck. That wasn't them causing a fight. Poor timing. Poor timing on their part from when the dra when the dinosaur when the dinosaur doomsday clock was was brought around. I remember reading that about that in Scientific American one year. Anyway, I. I would set the clock maybe, if I were feeling negative, I might set the clock at 7 p.m. Like, okay, maybe we're a little more than half because humans are morons and we got these weapons and we got the biological weapons and we got, you know, there's, there's bad people in the world. So maybe you set it at 7 p.m. Like when things are going really well. Well, since 1947, and if you think about our history since that time, when were we at a time that really felt like we were, like we had the least risk as a society, as a civilization? I think for most people who are old enough to have a, this kind of perspective, I would say early 1990s and the time during which when, when Bill Clinton came in, and remember the, remember the whole peace dividend? Like, we could cut way back on military spending because the world was such a calm place, and I'm not talking about whether the peace dividend was a good idea, right? Because that's actually falls directly in line with the conversation we just had with Bridge Colby about, you know, maybe we're not in a good enough position to prevent war because we're not strong enough, and so our enemies aren't afraid of us, right? But in the early 1990s, the Soviet Union was done, right? The Berlin Wall came down, I think it was 1989. I think the Berlin Wall came down. It's all, it's all famous, tied up with Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. But it actually came down when George H.W. Bush was president. It did not come down during the, Bush pres during the Reagan presidency, just after that. So a couple years later, the Soviet Union is, is gone. Russia is not powerful. And at that time, they're not governed by Putin Right, they're, they've got, I think they've still got Yeltsin at that time, and things seem pretty mellow, and China is nothing yet, and we didn't have significant international terrorism yet, Islamic, Islamo-fascist terrorism. The world was super calm. 1991. So, 
Dragon in 1991, where to most people, the world felt the safest that it has felt since this doomsday clock still came around, came around in 1947. Where do you think they set the clock in 1991? I want to go with like maybe three or four minutes from midnight. All right, so you're even more pessimistic, but you see where I'm going. They set it at 11.43 p.m., I think it was. Oh, wow. 11.42. Okay. Or 11, so 17 minutes until midnight when the world is as good as it could be. And now... And now it's it's all the way up at, what, how many minutes till midnight is it now? 90 seconds, I think. 90 seconds till midnight. 90 seconds till midnight. These people are telling us that if you were to, to, to arrange all of human history over 12 hours from the first time there was a cognizable human until when humanity ends... And divide that into 24 hours or even 12. Let's say, let's call it 12 hours. That's fine too. I don't care because uh, the difference is insignificant, really. And then you divide that up into minutes. And then you divide that up into seconds. And you, you have this whole giant long timeline in front of you in seconds, right? We're 90 seconds from all dying now over the course of all of human history. And we're 99.99999% we're through all of human history that will ever exist based on this clock. And, and, and they've been doing this for a long time, actually. They've been, they've been ramping it up aggressively since around 2012 because they're so worried about climate change. Morons. These are the dumbest smart people in the world. Now, let me just say... Most humans don't want to die. I realize there are Islamofascist terrorists who are willing to die in the name of their twisted, benighted cult. I'm not saying, by the way, that all of Islam is a cult. I'm talking about that version. I get that. But even those people doing the worst they could do and, and they could do worse than they've done if they got their hands on the right stuff. Even doing the worst they could do would not destroy humanity. What is it about these people that makes them want to tell us that we're all so close to death? Because what I think is, if I were going to set this clock today, I think I'd set it at 7 p.m. I think, much in line with what Elbridge Colby was saying earlier in the show, I think our biggest risk right now is China. I don't think it's Russia. You never know. Things could spiral out of control, and Vladimir Putin could get super desperate, and he has nuclear weapons, and I get all that. I get all that. Is he really going to do that? Does he want to die? Does he want to be the guy in charge with, of uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg being wiped off the map, even if the other side is Denver gets wiped off the map? Is, is Putin that guy? I don't think so. I suppose in a most literal sense, I wouldn't bet my life on being right about that, but I don't think so. And I think, because I spent a lot of time talking about doomsday here, like I said, I, I think human beings have a certain nature. That nature makes us a warlike species. We're at war as a species somewhere. All the time. I don't know if there's ever been a time 
in the last thousand years, two thousand years? It's be an interesting question, actually. Is there has there has there been a time in the last thousand years where there wasn't a war going on somewhere? I, I don't know. And we might not know, actually, because if there was a war going on, you know, between tribes in Central Africa in, you know, 1100 AD, then there's almost certainly no record of it, and we'll never know. But I bet there's always been a war going somewhere, and yet, here we are. Here we are. I'm looking at my producer through some glass, and you're listening to me on some speakers or headphones or something, and we're all here. And I think we're going to be here. This is not to say nothing bad can happen. Bad things can happen. But I think this is the nerdy, and I mean this in a bad way now. I usually mean nerdy in a good way. But the, the nerdy science version of if it bleeds, it leads. These scientists put out a number that is fundamentally meaningless. This doomsday clock doesn't mean anything at all. It doesn't mean when they set it 90 seconds to midnight, they could set it 90 minutes to midnight. They could set it 90, 90 seconds after midnight. So like we're just at the beginning of everything and we've got almost all of human history is still in front of us and none of it matters. None of it, it's not just none of it matters and it's not just none of it changes anything. It's, it's utterly meaningless. And I think part of my frustration with the story was, you know, these liberal tools, and this is what they are, post this thing, and then all the mainstream media outlets run with it. You know, this was in all the news broadcasts when this happened a few days ago, as if it matters. And it doesn't, because... The most likely thing, I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's 100%. Nothing involving humans is 100%, okay? Nothing. The most likely thing is that for a very, very long time, the vast majority of us are going to be fine. Yeah, there's a war in Ukraine and people are dying, and that's bad. There could be a war with China over Taiwan. That could be really bad. Would it be bad enough to destroy civilization? I don't know. A war with China could get really, really ugly. That's as big a threat as you can imagine in recent years. And on the other hand, everybody knows that, which in its own way you would think would make that kind of conflict less likely. So I, I think I've done enough on, on this. I just want to say when you see that doomsday clock kind of stuff, ignore it. Remind yourself that it is some combination of virtue signaling and attention seeking and money raising. And that these same people have been setting the doomsday clock at some number of minutes to midnight. I mean, between 1947 and 1990? They never set it further away from midnight than 12 or 13 minutes. Never. Right? So it's been, you know, it's always been at least 11.47 or 11.48 p.m. and we all die at midnight. 
it, from 1947 all the way up through 1990. Then with that brief piece, it went down and then it went right back up again. So there's actually only been a few years since 1947 that we were less than 10 minutes from midnight. And it's meaningless. Life's been great for most of the world and getting better for, this is the key, it's getting better for most of the world, most places, most of the time. I mean, we talk about China all the time and we talk about the Chinese Communist Party and Taiwan and this and that, but just put them aside for a second. The Chinese government is terrible. But the Chinese people, we've had 300 million people or something like that come out of desperate poverty in just a couple of decades. 300 million people who consistently were on the verge of starving to death aren't anymore. They have enough money that they can, you know, take a trip and come visit Denver. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing what humans do, what humans have done, what we're going to continue to do. And I refuse to ever believe that we are close to doomsday. We're not. We're not. All right, here's a nutty story. This George Santos dude, it's just like, he's this congressman from Long Island, New York, who seems to have lied about essentially everything. Like, we're not, at this point, we're not even sure that George Santos is his name, and I'm not saying that as hyperbole. But we know he didn't work where he said he worked as far as Citibank and, or Citigroup and, and Goldman. We know he didn't run a nonprofit. We know he's not Jewish. We know his mom was not in the Twin Towers on 9-11. Just all of these things. Can't kick him out of office for that. Directly. You can't just say you're out. Although Kevin McCarthy has said if he was found to have broken the law, McCarthy says he will do whatever he can to get him out. But, but just on the basis of being a liar, there's not much McCarthy can do it's up to the voters. And I don't think there's a recall mechanism. So he would be in there for two years unless he's removed some other way. So this is just, this is something that I've really been wondering about since this story first percolated up. His campaign was apparently significantly financed by somewhere around $700,000 in loans that he said he made to his own campaign. And this is a very common thing. I've mentioned this on the show before. Most of the time, even the richest people, what they do with their campaigns is they loan the money, they don't give the money. And it's, you know, maybe in part because they want to get paid back by donors, but there's more to it than that. And it, it's, it's a complex area of campaign finance law that I can't say I really understand. I just know that there are reasons beyond just I want to get paid back to call it a loan, all right? So everybody does it. And I was asking myself when this story came out, well, how did this dude get $700,000 to loan himself? Let me go to Newsweek for this. Questions about the funding of George Santos's congressional bid intensified on Tuesday after the New York Republican fi filed an amended Federal Election Commission report in which he no longer claimed that a $500,000 loan re received had come from the, quote, personal funds of the candidate. 
So in a previous version of this form, he had written a $500,000 loan, and there's a little box that you can check that says, this loan comes from the personal funds of the candidate, and it was checked, and now he filed another one, and it was unchecked. In the amended filings, there was also another $125,000 loan that was received in October that was not from his personal money, but he doesn't say where it came from. And they quote in this Newsweek piece an election lawyer who says, if the candidate's personal wealth wasn't the source of the loan, then what was? The only other permissible source would be a bank, and they would require collateral for a loan of this size. And if a bank wasn't the source of the funds, then the only alternatives are illegal sources. Maybe this will be the thing that takes George Santos down. I'll tell you what, if George Santos were a character in a movie, you wouldn't believe him. You wouldn't believe that a character like that could exist in real life, and yet here he is. When we come back, spam. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ross. Thanks for spending a little time with me. What is that? Doom and gloom by the Stones. Doom and gloom. All right. A listener asks, uh, Ross, do you think we're closer to doomsday now than during the missile crisis, Cuban missile crisis? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I'll just mention one more thing on this. What, oh, gosh, what's the name of the book? I'm having a brain cramp. All right, I'll have to think of it. I, uh, I, Abel Archers, the, the Abel archers okay that is a tremendous book for the person who asked about cuban missile crisis and and how close we were to war oh my gosh i had the author of the able archers on the show his name is brian mora m-o-r-r-a and since then he went on jack carr's podcast and i think he's getting some good success and it wouldn't surprise me if they make a movie out of this thing but it is a half fiction version it is it is based on his own actual experiences when he was part of military intelligence serving in eastern europe and and just how he argues that we got closer to nuclear war in i want to say 1983 in 1983 he argues we got closer to nuclear war in 1983 than the world ever knew. And it's a remarkable story. And the, the, like I said, The Able Archers is, it's technically fiction, but it's based on stuff that really happened. And I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I'm looking at Amazon right now. It has a rating of 4.7 out of 5. And I would give it a little higher than that. It It's really, really good if you're interested in this stuff, uh, able are the able archers by Brian Mora, M O R R A. Really, really good read. All right. Um, this is 
the important thing that we are going to do today. Could I have egg, bacon, spam, and sausage without the spam? Yeah. What do you mean? Uh, I don't like spam. Spam, 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 spam. <laughs> So that's that's the Monty Python spam sketch, and it's up on the blog if you've never seen it. If you go to RossKaminsky.com, I actually have three videos on the blog today about spam. One of them is about the history of spam, the food. One of them is this Monty Python spam thing, and the other one is something I'll play for you in a moment, which is a great song about spam by a band that probably one or two percent of folks listening to me right now have ever heard of the band that I'm going to share with you in a bit. So the Monty Python thing is actually highly relevant to the conversation we're going to have right now. Oh, and if you've never seen it, that's a bunch of Vikings. So there's a, it's like a little restaurant diner thing. And this, uh, you know, middle-aged couple sits down. And these are all the Monty Python guys, right? So the lady in that, actually, there's two ladies in that. The one saying, I don't like spam. And the lady behind the counter who says, ew, when she says, can I have spam, eggs, bacon and sausage without the spam and the lady behind the counter says ew and those are both guys one of them, one of them's Terry Jones the other one is Graham Chapman and anyway and and sitting next to them is a table of vikings wearing fur pelts uh, uh, wearing fur pelts and horned hats and and they just start singing spam and then they cut to a picture of a giant viking uh, ship, you know, with oars on the sides, rowing in the ocean in black and white film. Uh, and I don't know, by the way, where they got that film. I didn't know that they were doing that kind of uh, that kind of video in the 900s, but apparently they got some. Anyway, it's so a lot of people who were early in the days of internet, developing internet, and, and Usenet and all these these online groups with you know you would dial in to this one server and it wasn't even connected to anything to begin with you would just dial into this thing and do something on a message board and then hang up and dial in later and I'm a nerd so I did all that stuff you know but really before I I guess you would say I was online before there was really an internet when you think of the inter part connecting all these things it there wasn't yet. It was just these random little things. And it was really, really fun. But the point I want to make is most people who were involved in developing that stuff are big, big nerds. And big, big nerds like Monty Python. And that's why I'm such a big Monty Python fan. I am a nerd. And, nerd! and so we were talking about eating spam. And apparently Mandy is going to pay Dragon to eat some spam. And I will eat some spam for free. And we did have a listener, Dragon, who says, Ross, you really need to try spam. Slice it fairly thin and fry it with some eggs. So good, the whole state of Hawaii can't be wrong. LOL. All 
right, we'll tr when Mandy brings it in, Dragon and I will both try it. Mandy's and I, a pretty good cook. I'm not afraid. Yeah, I'm not afraid either. And as I look at the ingredients in Spam, they're not really that scary. You could look at a lot of other things that have all these words you can't pronounce, and Spam seems pretty straightforward in terms of what it is. So how, though, did we get to a point where the name, where the word Spam applies to junk email? And let me just share a little of this with you. This, uh, and I've got links to all this stuff if you want to go share with your nerdy friends. This is from digitaltrends.com. Spam, spam, spam. It's almost impossible to avoid. The average daily volume of email spam in the last month was 250 billion messages. This article is eight years old. Eight years old. Imagine what it is now. If it was 250 billion in a month eight years ago, are you kidding me? Spam email accounted for more than 85% of global email traffic. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Hormel Foods introduced spam in 1937. According to the official spam story, the name was the brainchild of Ken Danio, brother of Hormel Foods VP, who won $100 in the contest to name spam. It's a simple shortening of either spiced ham or shoulders of pork and ham. By 1970, Hormel had sold more than 2 billion cans of spam, and it served as the basis of an irreverent Monty Python sketch in which a cafe menu consists of a list of items that are increasingly heavy on the spam, which eventually degenerates into a random group of Vikings singing spam, 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 love lovely spam, wonderful spam, as the angry cafe waitress screams, shut up. The first spam message predates the popularization of the term. It was sent by a marketer from Digital Equipment Corporation, and he used a printed ARPANET directory to try to drum up interest in a new computer. And nobody really knows who came up with the term, but this began to be used in the 1980s in the multi-user dungeon community as a reference to the Python sketch. So basically what it meant was a whole bunch of just unwanted interjections into a conversation that you are otherwise having, and it actually is based on that Monty Python sketch. All right, I'll tell you what. I owe you this song, but in the interest of time and not be and, and not wanting to play just three seconds of it, I'm going to hold it over till the next segment. You want to hear maybe the best song about spam. I'll give it to you right after this on KOA. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. We just got a letter. Wonder who it's from. Hello. What? That was Blue's Clues? Yes. And then... The, the, ending, I, the ending is nothing, but it, I just... We were talking about spam. We've got a letter. Come on. Uh, maybe a bit of a stretch, but wow. something. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, something. I just, I'm going to have to start this segment with a song. 
because I kind of wanted to do it in the last segment, but I want to make sure I got enough time for you to really listen. This is a really fun band, the small band. Most people never heard of them. I recommend that you go online and go on YouTube and listen to some of their songs or listen on Spotify or wherever you, or just, you know, on, on your iHeart app, I bet you can find it. I, uh, um, the band is called Save Ferris, S-A-V-E-F-E-R-R-I-S, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And the gal who's the lead singer of this band is, is really good. And, well, listen to this. It seems a little cruel. It's, it's made pink and it's awful. It's pink and it's awful. It's made, made in Chernobyl. Wow, that's it, hard. Isn't that harsh? But she's got such a great voice. Let's see. It's pink and it's awful. That's just not very nice. It's not very nice. And it's that kind of thinking that has kept me away from spam low these many years. If you... All right, let's 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 do a little math together. If you were to uh, assign to the variable X the number of years that I have been alive, X equals how many years Ross has been alive. And you were to subtract from that number how many years it's been... Or how do I want to how do I want to do this math? I'm messing this all up. It's really dumb. Brain is full of spam. My brain is full of spam. I was gonna try to do some math to say like if you subtracted from my age something related to spam, what you would end up with is my age because I've never tried it. I have never tried it. And and you know, I I think everybody knows spam is huge in Hawaii, and. I used to live on Guam, and I have no idea if spam is is huge on Guam or not. I, I don't know. I, it seems like a kind of thing I, I should know, probably. Anyway, uh, so so that there's that. I wonder if there was anything else on the on the spam thing that I needed to that I needed to mention to you. Uh, I think um, no, nah, I think you got it. I, there, th- by the way, if you didn't understand that term, multi-user dungeon. That goes back to, like, the first online games before there were massive multiplayer games with computers connected to each other, but people would play these online games that were sort of like a version of Dungeons and Dragons. Like Zork and Adventure. Yeah, I loved Adventure. I don't think I... I, I know of Zork. I don't think I played it. Very similar. Um, like, uh, if you were to imagine... World of Warcraft, but where you weren't playing with people all over the world. 
right? Just on this one little computer. It's strictly text-based. There are no images. Uh, so those were multi-user dungeons, and that's where the word spam first started being used. Uh, actually, as this is fun. I like talking about spam. According to Brad Templeton... This is from stickybranding.com, so a marketing website. The term spamming got used to apply to a few different behaviors. One was to flood the computer with so much data as to crash it. Another was to spam the database by having a program create a huge number of objects rather than creating them by hand. And the term was sometimes used to mean simply flooding a chat session with a bunch of text inserted by a program. Like many great online trends, the term took on a life of its own. It broke free from the gamer community and became a popular term for annoying behavior in IRC. That's Internet Relay Chat. So that's like the very, very earliest days of online messaging. In every new communication technology from Usenet to email to social media, people abused the platforms with unwanted, repetitive junk messages. And each time the term spam followed, and that all comes straight out of that Monty Python skit when those Vikings were singing spam. And, you know, why wouldn't you? If you if you were a Viking, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Lovely spam. Sing it, dragon. Spam. Spam, spam, spam! Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, Friday. It is the end of the week. I think it's time to party. It's Ross Kaminsky on KOA, 850 AM, 941 FM, and on iHeartRadio. Everybody's working for the weekend. Everybody wants a new romance. All right, here we are. I'm Ross. Thanks for being here. A uh, couple of quick things. So coming up about 10 minutes from now, kind of tying in to what intrepid newsman chad was just talking about with michael hancock current denver mayor michael hancock's advice for denver mayoral candidates one of them is going to be on this show kwame uh, spearman is the co-owner of tattered cover and he's running for mayor and he's going to join the show in a little bit uh what else dragon what does it say about us that in however long we've been doing radio and, and however long I've been doing radio even before you and I started working together, I, I think that the loudest I ever sang into the microphone 
on radio while I was on the air was just now singing the Viking spam song from Monty Python. That's fantastic. I mean, you you did sing the uh, the 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 band words thing, kind of. When, oh, the when, Save Ferris. Uh, or just no, now? no, no. The um um what was it a week or so ago? We were picking the the band from the band words list. The listeners that sent in uh, oh, paragraphs. So yeah. you did kind of sing that jingle, which right. which won because you sang. But yeah, that was the. It, it's always a pleasure when you sing. I am a terrible singer, but it's I'm a worse artist. Fantastic. I am such a bad drawer that my older kid in particular, who's an excellent artist, will sometimes, if a friend comes over, ask me to draw something so they can laugh at me. And sometimes I will abide by it. But, I mean... So your your stick figures are... are... I can't even do a stick figure that you could recognize as a stick figure. Fair enough. Okay. I, uh, I can't. But I just... There is something about a table full of Vikings eating spam that makes you want to sing along with them, right? Of course. I can't be alone in that. Right. I can't be alone in that. Two different people texted about spam and Guam. One person said spam is very popular on Guam today, just as on Hawaii, all because of the influence of American GI's menu during World War II. And then another listener says, Guam consumes more spam per capita than Hawaii. In Hawaii, McDonald's has spam as an option for breakfast. I was thinking about this after reading those listener tweets. If spam is so popular on Guam and I lived on Guam, why did I not have spam? And I think I know the answer. And that is, when I was younger, my parents were religious enough. We were not a very religious household, but religious enough were Jewish, that they did not bring pork into the house. On the rare occasion that I was allowed to have bacon, and I was once in a while, it would have been if we went out for breakfast somewhere and they they let me order bacon. It was a Christmas miracle, yeah. Just the taste of bacon is a revelation, an absolute revelation to this Jew. And uh, I bought some the other day. Uh, Just a little bit more spam stuff here. Why not? It's Friday you know, we're coasting. We're just trying to get through to the weekend. Actually, we're not. Just I'm, less than an hour left I'm, to go. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to the Avalanche game tomorrow with my kid. I'm excited about that. I think, did I take you to a game? You did. They won like nine to nothing. It yeah. was glorious. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, taking, uh, I'm taking A-Rod and his wife tomorrow. And, and, um, and part of the reason is my, my kid, who A-Rod thinks he can beat at Fortnite, is going with me. So... You mean your kid that won a gaming championship not too long ago? Right, that Not exactly kid. for Fortnite, but right. your kid is a almost a professional gamer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think you heard this part, because I think A-Rod was in when I mentioned this. So this, this game, Fortnite, has been around about five years or so. A while, yeah. Came out, I think, late 2017, and then my kid probably started playing a little, a little bit after that. Call it early 2018, so five years. So five years is 1,800 days, give or take. 1,800 days. A-Rod said that he has played, because there you can see the number in Fortnite if you know where to look, the total number of hours that you've played. A-Rod says he's played a little over 1,000 hours of Fortnite in, in those roughly 1,800 days since the game has been around. 
how many hours do you think my kid has played of of Fortnite? And again, let's say eight. There's eighteen hundred days when he could have played, and he you know wouldn't play every day, um, lots of days, but not every day. How many hours do you, of Fortnite do you think my kid plays has played? And and just before you answer, let me just say. The answer will represent one of the greatest failures of parenting that you have ever heard. Oh, so I'm going to go a little higher than what I thought. I was going to double that and say maybe around 2,000 hours. So let's go 2,500, maybe 3,000. Okay, go up a little. 3,500? No, a, li a little more. 4,000. A little more. 5,000? A, li a, little, a little more. 5,500? No, no, a little okay. more than that. 5,200? No. No, you're going to have to go up a little faster oh, than that. Okay, uh, 6,000? No. Keep going. 8,000? Yeah, a little over 8. A little over 8,000. 8,000 hours? Something like that. Huh. That's, I think, averaging more than four hours a day every day. And he didn't play every day. So that would mean 10 hours some days. And that, my friends, is very, very bad parenting. Sing, I'm a lumberjack. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. Eight all night and I work all day. I cut down trees and I wear high heels and I go to the lavatory. Wear high heels? All right, how, are you, you happy now? Are you happy now that I just embarrassed myself on international radio? People in... Should I be ashamed that I didn't even... I, I kind of recognize the tune, but I don't right, recognize go, go the song. Look, go look up the Monty Python lumberjack song okay, while I talk uh, yeah. about this other thing. And then we're going to get Kwame Spearman uh, on the show in three minutes. In December of 2021, according to this one study, over 45% of total emails sent worldwide were spam. In 2021, there were, let's see, uh, 300. Let me make sure I get this right. Is this really right? A daily number? Yeah. Works all day. I cut down trees. I eat my lunch. I go to the lavatory. On Wednesday, I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. He cuts down trees, eats his lunch. He goes to the lavatory. On Wednesday, he goes shopping and has buttered scones for tea. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. And then they'll get to the part where he wears women's clothes. Uh... So, so in September of 2021, the number of spam emails worldwide was around 89 billion out of 105 billion emails. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. These numbers are, they're just incredible, aren't they? Two and a half percent of spam emails are scams and fraud. Um, and among those, about 73% are phishing emails. Uh, you get the idea. Okay, here. What are the top 10 countries that send the most spam? This is as of October 2021. The U.S. sent around 8.6 billion spam emails. I don't know over what time period that is, though. I don't know. I don't know if that's, you know, in a month, in a day. I, I don't know. China is right behind, almost exactly the same. Russia right behind that. Then Brazil, India, Germany, Czech Republic, believe it or not, and then Poland, Bulgaria, and the UK. I guess there's lots of fraud, fraudy stuff coming out of uh, coming out of Eastern Europe. Uh, a listener asked Ross, "Have you introduced your kids to Monty Python? If so, do they like the comedy? They both know it. One of them likes it more than the other. 
Um, the older one does. The older one is a little nerdy like me, although way more artistic than I am, and does like to watch the movies and the TV shows. And I have the DVD set. I actually got to find it. I have the DVD set of the complete Monty Python's Flying Circus TV show, as was aired on the BBC many, many years ago, and it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. All right, let's do something completely different. You heard our intrepid newsman, Chad Bauer, talking about or, or playing audio from Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, who was giving a little advice to people who might run for mayor of Denver because when Hancock ran, there were nearly 20 candidates, and he said he was advising folks to just sort of keep their heads down, focus on their message, not worry about who else is in the race, and just... In a way, it's a version of the don't spend a lot of time thinking about things you can't control. It's that kind of message. So joining me now, one of the candidates for mayor this time, Kwame Spearman is CEO and co-owner of Tattered Cover, the absolutely legendary uh, chain of bookstores here in the Denver area. He is a candidate for mayor of Denver as well. Kwame, welcome to KOA. It's good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, Ross. And if you want to talk Monty Python, I can do that in equal exuberation as I can talk about the mayor's race right now. And and you know what? I think we, we will, although maybe not right now. Um, okay. Although I would Happy love Friday, to, too. I would love to just do the whole dead parrot sketch with you. Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> that would be yeah, that would be for, really really good. This is an expert. For next week. Uh, yeah, for next week. Okay. Um, why you? You know, Ross, I am actually the only small business CEO in the mayor's race right now. Um, I had the privilege of purchasing Tattered Cover in 2020 and saving that iconic institution from bankruptcy. And that, coupled with being a Denver native, understanding uh, in many ways what Denver used to be and what the community used to be, I think gives me a unique skill set to actually have output and solutions for where we need. And, and I think that's through our neighborhoods, Ross. I, one of the things that has made the Denver metro area so unique on a national scale is we have the most vibrant, diverse neighborhoods. And, and what I think has happened is Denver is now too large for just a one-size-fits-all solution. And you're seeing that with our city government. I, the folks at City Hall are doing wonderful things, but it's not translating into tangible action for our community. And so we're being ravaged right now by a homeless epidemic. Crime is out of control. Housing costs are through the roof. And we're not actually helping our residents. And so for me, what, what I think we need to do, and this is my vision for Denver, is we need to believe that your neighborhood makes our city. We've got to go into our neighborhoods. We've got to ask the residents of those neighborhoods what they want, and we can ask them along the needs of what they need from a housing perspective, what they need from a safety perspective, what they need from a, um, from, from a local economy perspective. And then we've got to reorganize our government to actually accommodate that. So we're going to think big by going small, Ross. Okay, so all right, I want to ask you two things uh, related to two different subjects. First of all, how do you make a bookstore successful that has a physical location and has to pay rent and, and in-person employees and all that when you're competing against all the virtual, when you're competing against Amazon? How, how'd you do that? 
We, we did it through having a community vision, and it's the same type of vision that I want to bring for Denver. You know, we wanted Tattered Cover to be a place where everyone felt welcome, where we could have reasonable discussions. You know, Ross, I fundamentally believe that we are not that far apart. You know, as someone who grew up in this state and got the best of the state and gets to interact with all types of people, there are some beliefs that we hold as Coloradans, whether it's that we love the 310 days of sunshine a year or a trip up to the mountain on the weekends. The reason why Tattered Cover is successful is because we embodied that, and we took the polarization, and we just tried to remove it from our storefront, and we let books be the narrative. And when you, when you want to talk about your love of reading, when you want to talk about sort of what you've read, Tattered Cover is a place to go for that. And I think that's our success. But, Russ, I want to be clear with you. If we don't clean up our city, if we don't address homelessness, businesses like Tattered Cover, employees who work at businesses like Tattered Cover, they're not going to be able to call Denver home anymore. That, that's just the plain truth of it. If you go to one of our stores in the city, you'll see that we are battling with people who are dealing with their own struggle over drug use, but that struggle is happening in our stores. Now, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. If you talk to our employees, they can't live in Denver right. anymore. And so I, I, I will always tell you that Tattered Cover is going to be around because they're people like me. They're people like the community who are invested in it. But if we don't make some serious changes in our city, we are not going to have a local economy anymore. We're talking with Kwame Spearman, CEO and co-owner of Tattered Cover, a candidate for mayor of Denver. Now, uh, I'm going to try to ask this in a way that isn't too partisan because this isn't really a this isn't a partisan race anyway. And and in Denver, you know, the battle is really between the center left and the far left. The right has no power at all. And you are raising what I think are the key issues for most people who live in Denver right now, crime and homelessness. And when you start talking with and I, by the way, Kwame, I don't know anything about your politics um, but when you start talking about, you gotta go to, you gotta go to Kwame for Denver.com and everything's listed there. Okay. K W A M E F O R Denver.com Kwame for Denver.com. So Correct. when you start talking about, all right, we've got to do something about crime. We've got to do something about homelessness. You could find yourself butting heads with people from the who are to the left of you, wherever you are, people to the left of you who always talk about trying to do do something about those issues as somehow being cruel or insensitive or something. So, how do you approach these issues that need a, a hard nosed answer in a city that seems to be in a mood to turn itself into Portland? You, you know, Ross, I, I am a Democrat, and I've always been a proud Democrat. But more importantly, I am a small business owner, and I believe in ruthless pragmatism. And the simple reality of the situation is that tattered cover cannot attract customers if there are tents outside of a tattered cover, if there are people who are using our bathroom as showers or areas to shoot up, or people who are passing out on our customers, or excuse me, on our floors, we lose customers. And if we lose those customers, we cannot pay the very employees who are going to work and doing exactly what society wants from them. And, Russ, some of those employees, if we can't pay them, are going to find themselves being unhoused. So we need a mayor that can speak truth 
power. What I just said, it's not a Democratic talking point. It's not a Republican talking point. It's reality. And the only way that Denver is going to advance itself and get out of the funk that we are in right now is by embracing reality. Crime has gotten bad. If you are at the tattered cover and you're dealing with the issues that I just talked about and you call the police, the police do not show up. And if the police show up, which they typically don't, they have no power, or at least they're telling me they have no power to handle the situation. We've created a new normal that is not who we are as a city, and we have to get back to our original principles. As someone who employs people who make the minimum wage, I can tell you it is condescending for someone who's housed to assume that someone wants to live in a tent. It's just condescending. And so we can do a lot of things around innovation of getting people off the street, but the one thing that we have to do is not accept it as acceptable because it's not. uh, So let me just jump in for a second because we – We only got about 90 seconds left. I do think that some percentage of the people who live in tents do it because they want to, uh, but not all. Some people really need some help, and those those groups have to be treated differently. Uh, And again, in the context of how I framed this earlier, where your debate is going to be against people who are to your left, um, and I I literally have one minute here. So you've laid out the problems very well. Uh, We haven't talked much about solutions, so let me ask you one very specific question. If you were in charge and had the power, would you give police more authority to do things that end some of the, or move along some of the nuisance problems that are bedeviling your store with, you know, homeless people in your bathrooms? Yes, yes, Ross. The policy, unfortunately, is already established. We've literally had elections that say that you cannot camp on the street. So step one is enforcing the laws on the books. That's step one. I, you can call it a policy proposal, once again, or you can call it living in reality. We, we cannot accept the state of the city that we're in right now. The second policy change that we need to do is we have to reexamine our portfolio of services for the unhoused. The current housing systems that we have in place, the current systems that we have in place are simply not working. And once again, I think you need a business perspective to get that portfolio. The third, to your point, is I agree with you. There are people who are choosing to live in tents. But you know what? We as a city can choose to tell those people to go somewhere else. Absolutely. I don't think we can accept that. And that's what we've got to do moving forward. And, and quite frankly, I'm the only candidate in the race who's speaking like this. And I think it's because I'm the only small business CEO in the race right now. Well, it is, it is very refreshing to hear. And um, we're about out of time here. Let me just make one comment. Denver has been on the wrong track with homelessness since John Hickenlooper decided and then um, Michael Hancock continued with this concept that what we need to do is build a lot more housing for homeless people and give them this, that, and the other thing for free. And all it did was made Denver a magnet for homeless people. And instead of having a safety net, they turned it into a a comfortable hammock for people to lounge around in. And I am not surprised because they did not pay attention to incentives. Kwame Spearman is candidate for mayor of Denver. He's the co-owner of Tattered Cover. Kwame for Denver, K-W-A-M-E-F-O-R, Denver.com. Thanks for being here. We'll do it again. All right. I guess he's gone. Uh, All right, when we come back, that little bottle of whiskey you bought might not have any whiskey in it. Oh, boy.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, good morning. Late morning. Almost noon. Getting there. Thanks for spending some time with me. I, I got to say, I was very impressed. I was very impressed with Kwame Spearman. Uh, when you're going to have 15 or 20 candidates in a race, it's not going to be, by definition, not an easy race to win. Actually, think back to the 2016 Republican primary for president. One of the reasons, I'm not going to say it's the only reason, but one of the reasons that Donald Trump got the nomination was that he was the most famous person in the race. And, and that's not a, a plus or, you know, I, I'm not either praising or criticizing Donald Trump. I'm just saying this is the way politics works. Very often, and especially in crowded races, the most important thing can be just how many people know your name. Oh, I've heard of him, I'll vote for him. I've heard of her, I'll vote for her. You know, uh, so I, I don't know how many of the people who are going to be in the running for Denver mayor are going to be very well known to Denver citizens. And frankly, I think Kwame Spearman is probably not a very well-known name right now. I'm guessing, uh, I, you know, what, what percentage of the residents of Denver do you think can name the co-owner of, of Tattered Cover? I bet you it's under 5%. All of these people are going to have to fix that. Yeah, I don't even, I haven't paid close attention because I, I don't live in Denver, but I'm, st I'm starting to pay more attention now as we get closer to the race because so many listeners live in Denver and, and I want to make sure I get all this right. I, but I don't, I don't think there's anybody famous. So these people are going to have to work their, work really, really hard to get their name out. It's part of the reason that the ones who are smart are going to ask to be on the show. And I'll tell you, even though it's only a Democrat who, really has any measurable chance of winning in Denver for the time being, if you have someone come on and say the kind of stuff that Kwame Spearman just said, which is, yes, I'm a Democrat, but I'm very, very pragmatic and we need to solve these problems, that's the kind of thing that could get moderates and moderate Republicans perhaps in Denver to vote for someone like that, even though he's a Democrat. In that race, you don't run as a Democrat or a Republican, you just run. So uh, anyway, I was, I was impressed with the guy. I don't know him. I, I'm not sure. I, I think I've exchanged a few emails with him in the past about this or that thing at Tattered Cover, but I don't know him. We're not friends. I've never met him before. I just want to make that part clear as well. All right, here's a, here's a funny little lawsuit for you. So I'm sure you've all heard of and may or may not have had a particular kind of liquor called Fireball. And it's got a little sort of winged demon on the front that's got a ball of fire coming out of its mouth. And it's a, it's an, it's a cheap cinnamon-ish flavored whiskey. And I say that without personal experience because I've never had it, but I know what it is. And 
when you look on the regular bottles of, of Fireball, it says, under the little flying demon dude, it says cinnamon whiskey. They also sell, like lots of alcohol companies do, these tiny little bottles, you know, airplane size, airplane size bottles. And most of the time, I think that you think that the airplane bottle, the airplane size bottle, is the same stuff as in the full size bottle. It's just a smaller amount, right? Like an ounce or whatever versus. 750 mLs. A class action lawsuit, I'm going to NBCBayArea.com, a class action lawsuit has been filed in Cook County, Illinois against the makers of Fireball Cinnamon over what the plaintiff alleges is purposefully misleading packaging. And I'll tell you what, as I read this story, I'm inclined to think that she's right. On January 7th, plaintiff Anna Marquez filed suit in Illinois regarding deceptive labeling on fireball cinnamon. Now, again, you look at these tiny fireball bottles, and underneath the little devil dude, it says cinnamon. On the big bottles, underneath the little devil dude, it says cinnamon whiskey. But under this one, it says cinnamon. Made by parent company Sazerac, fireball cinnamon is a suite of products that include malt-based and wine-based alcoholic beverages made to, quote, capture the essence of the original Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey, but they do not contain any actual whiskey. Many bottles of Fireball Cinnamon are sold in stores in the U.S. that can only sell beer, malt beverages, and wine products like gas stations and grocery stores, typically for 99 cents, but they aren't the same product as Sazerac's more well-known spicy drink brand, Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey, which actually contains whiskey. Now, that's a good point. Like, you would think that most people who are buying this stuff in grocery stores or gas stations that do not sell any hard liquor at all, and yet you can buy Fireball, are you thinking, like, somehow Fireball got carved out and they're only that's the only whiskey that's allowed to be sold? You probably wouldn't think that. Yeah, producer Grant was just walking around, and he's like, wait a minute, I never really thought about that. But, yeah, that's true. You could, It's right there. Huh. It is. I've noticed it, too. I never bought it, but I've noticed it, too. I never really thought about right. that, but yeah. that's because I never really thought about buying it. But if I were thinking about buying it, it probably would occur to me, why can't I buy any other whiskey here and only that one? So this, this is actually kind of interesting. The suit alleges that the labels of the two distinct products, Fireball Cinnamon Whiskey and Fireball Cinnamon, are virtually indistinguishable from each other. I think that's right. And because of that, the malt or wine-based version of Fireball misleads consumers into believing it is or contains distilled spirits. Marquez says she purchased bottles of Fireball cinnamon, assuming they contained whiskey, which they do not. The company that makes this stuff says they won't comment on ongoing litigation. Now, this is the part that I like, the clever wording. This, this is where the lawyers make their money. The lawsuit alleges that in addition to the titles of the products being too similar to tell apart, the fine print text on Fireball Cinnamon bottles are similarly misleading, writing that with the words, and I quote, with natural whiskey and other flavors, that's what it says, with natural whiskey and other flavors. 
And the lawsuit calls those a clever turn of phrase because consumers who bother to strain to read the label will assume that the phrase natural whiskey is a separate item from other flavors. They will, and I'm quoting from the lawsuit, they will think the product is a malt beverage with, with added, one, natural whiskey, and two, other flavors. But what the label really means is that it contains natural whiskey flavors and other flavors. But by not including the word flavors after natural whiskey, purchasers who look closely will expect the distilled spirit of whiskey was added as a separate ingredient. I, I actually think Fireball is going to lose this case. Uh, you know, I don't know what that'll mean. I don't know who they're going to have to pay, if anyone or how much, or who they'll settle with or all that. But I, I will bet you, I will bet you that Fireball will have to change their label of the small thing that does not contain whiskey in, in some way to make it clearer that it doesn't. What do you think, Dragon? I'm not a big You're drinker. You're not a drinker, I'm not I a know. drinker, so it doesn't really bother me whatsoever. Yeah. But yeah, if, it's, if it is labeled eerily similar, then, then something's got to be done. Because if you're thinking that you're getting whiskey yeah. and you're not, you know, that's, that, that's not the way it should be. When you look at the labels of these two things, the top of both, the, so they're both yellow with dark brown or black writing. They both say fireball in these sort of curved letters, same font. They both have the same red demon underneath it. And then the the big bottle says cinnamon whiskey and the small bottle says cinnamon and everything else about. And, and then there's some tiny fine print, as we just described. I, I, I think fireball is going to lose this. I don't know if they'll lose a lot of money, but I think they're going to lose. Speaking of losing, Dragon's going to lose right after this when we play Name That Tune. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know what that music means, or at least Dragon does. That means we're playing Name That Tune. Uh, one very, very quick thing, Dragon, before we do Name That Tune. Uh, I have a nerd alert for you. I have a nerd alert for you. I got this from a listener. What five-letter word sounds the same with all five letters as it does if you remove the first letter or the third letter or the last letter? I don't know the answer. He asked this question. I haven't spent much time thinking about it. What five-letter word sounds the same with all five letters as it does if you remove the first letter or third letter or last letter and he gave a clue? The five-letter word meaning is having no value or purpose, contains nothing, vacant or unoccupied. And... He says, I'm not a nerd, not even close, just your average Joe, but when I saw this online, I thought of you and Dragon and thought you might like the challenge. I, I do. think I got it. Really? I think I've got it. 
Should I go uh, ahead? Yeah, go ahead. Empty. Wow. I'm not really good with these word stuff, but I think I got to you, you remove the first one. I you remove you the last it. one. You remove the middle one. It's still you got M T. Yeah, you, which is I empty. think you got it. Yeah. I think you got it. Dragon's a genius. It's about Nerd! to. Wow. How about that, Dale? Dragon got it right away. Dragon's much smarter than I am, but he's about to lose. So <laughs> what we're gonna do, we got about we got four minutes here to do this. So I think everyone know for, for new people, I'm gonna do this super fast. I've chosen a song that was released before the year 2000 that got at least moderate airplay on kind of mainstream rock and roll kind of stations when it came out. And our job is to guess what it is. And, and, and really the job is to try to guess what it is in, with the first clip, which is less than a second and a half long. Uh, and I think, I, I don't know, for people, this is going to be one of those ones, either you know it immediately or you're not. You're, okay, so uh, here we, and you can text me at 56690 and tell me what you think and it is. And you pick the song. I pick the song. Rush. No. <laughs> Ready? Does it sound familiar at all? <laughs> Dragon got it. Dragon wins. Dragon wins. Can you believe it? I, I win. What do you mean you win? Because uh, I'm gonna, I win. I'm going to play it again. It's, it's a really famous song for a very strange reason, uh, actually. But let me do it again. For, for those folks who are not as quick on their feet as, as Dragon. And I'll tell you, I... Grant, did you get it? Did you know? Did you know what it was? Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. So I knew he would. He's young. Uh, although this song isn't that, you know, it's an oldish song. It's but in the eighties. Yeah. But it got, and it was, it was, I think, number three on the charts for a while. But it got this huge resurgence for a reason that I'll describe uh, in, in a minute. But I thought Dragon was going to have a hard time with it because. I just sort of expect you to be better at the heavier rock and roll stuff and not this, which verges toward the pop side of rock and roll, right? Y I, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, so that it was, it was blaring at the time. Right. Oh, Mandy's just walking in. Mandy, if you, I, I don't want to be late for your show. we got about a minute, but if you hurry up, okay. I'll play this Name That Tune oh. thing, and we'll see, and we'll see if you can get it. Drag Let's do it. Dragon got it immediately, okay. and I suspect you will too, actually. Ready? Uh, that is never going to give you up by Rick Astley. That's so easy. Uh-huh. Uh, well, it's, I, it's even even if it's easy, I think it's pretty good to get a song in 1.3 seconds. That's yeah. what it was, 1.3 yeah. seconds. And My, my uh, son is a senior prank dressed as Rick Astley and went from classroom to classroom rickrolling everyone. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, all right, you I'm, can just... I'm not sure if our text line... You can just punch it down under me. Yeah, so I'm yeah. not sure if our text line is Rick rolling us, but, yeah. you know, I'd say maybe 30% got it wrong. What? Really? Yeah. So I'm yeah, not sure if you're embarrassing Rick... yourself. Yeah. <laughs> this is what made it so famous is Rick yeah. rolling. Yeah. You know, it was already was a big song, but Rick roll. And what was kind of funny is I, uh, Mandy's dancing in here, by the way. This I, is my music. I chose this song about a week ago to do for Name That Tune. Mm -hmm. And then today, or yesterday, it's in the news that there's this there's this dude named, like, Gravy something. Of uh, course. Yeah, what's his name? Young Gravy. Y-U-N-G yes. Gravy. Mm -hmm. And Rick Astley is suing him for yeah. making a song that sounds too much like this. And it does. And it does. I thought it was Rick Astley when I first heard and it. it. Yeah, and it does. Yeah. 
And well, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, Rick. I just right. imitate Ross every day for three hours on the radio. Let's uh, leave the music on, Dragon, while uh, Mandy and I do real or fake real quick. Because, I, oh, this is Young Gravy. Speaking of real or fake. <laughs> This video is actually hilarious. I'll have to watch the it. The Young Gravy video is yes. really... Talk about a dude who does not take himself seriously. His name is Young Gravy, for God's sake. I know. I know. Um, all right, ready? Yep. Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-Z, to review their broken tooth policy for employees. I don't know what Sheets is. Chicken of the Sea offering a million dollars to anyone who can find a mermaid. Every election official in Nevada town resigns, leaving no one in charge. Website offering $1,000 for someone to put together an Ikea bedroom set. It's got to be four because, you know, I can do it if they allow cursing. <laughs> so I would take the 1000 bucks. Like, as long as I can curse, mm -hmm. I can put something together from Ikea. So do you think that's the fake one? I think that's a fake one. And Producer Jagan, if Mandy has it right, all the canned tuna from the mermaid store. Nice. Mm -hmm. The actual fake headline is... Every elected official in Nevada town resigns, leaving really? no that one in charge. Really, that seems perfectly legit to me. It does seem like something. I mean, especially in Nevada. Something that could happen. I wanted you to know we spent a lot of time talking about spam today, and we, Dragon and I, spam, are looking spam, forward. Spam, yes, spam, we played that. Spam, spam, and spam. I sang it too. Look at that. Mandy yeah. and I both sing in the same day. Why wouldn't we? Spam, spam. All right, let's get you off so I can come okay. on here. Mandy's next. Have a great weekend, everyone. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.